The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 10 this morning. The word of the Lord. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels, bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king, but he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me, Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22, we'll be reading through verse 37 this morning. The word of our God. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not 
be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart and the, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Please keep your place here in the gospel according to Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. The lion of the tribe of Judah is astonishing in his mercy, but he is not a wimp. This is one of the ways in which modern Westerners tend to get the doctrine of God so terribly wrong. Um, when unbelieving Westerners tend to think about God when they think about him at all, they tend to think of him as sort of a cream puff who really just wants everybody to have a really nice day. Now, of course, while we have a particular problem with that in our own day, it's not a new idea. Uh, some 200 years ago, um, Heinrich Heine penned this famous line, Of course God will forgive me. That is his job. And do you know that many of your neighbors actually think just like that? Of course God will forgive me. That's what God does. And liberal theology has been built on this very neutered idea of God, which strips him of his holiness, strips him of his sovereignty, strips him of the fact that he has promised to bring the world into judgment for our sin. Uh, Richard Niebuhr famously summed up the liberal approach to theology like this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Beloved, this morning's passage makes clear just how wrong-headed this view of God actually is. Uh, we're going to look at this morning's passage under five main headings. First, division. Second, Christ the Conqueror. Third, Amazing Grace. Fourth, the Unforgivable Sin. And fifth, you must be born again. Now, don't panic. Um, other than the Unforgivable Sin, which is going to take just a bit to unpack, the other four uh, main headings that we're going to be looking at are things that I think we can grasp rather quickly. But let me give them to you once again so we all know where we're going this morning. First, division. Second, Christ the Conqueror. Third, Amazing Grace. Fourth, the Unforgivable Sin. And fifth, you must be born again. We begin with division. Look at verses 22 through 24 with me. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him 
so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, last week we saw that Jesus had withdrawn from the Pharisees that were seeking to destroy him. He withdrew to the Sea of Galilee and to the surrounding hill country, right? And so now that Jesus is pulled back from those who were out to bring a premature conclusion to his ministry, we're not entirely surprised that the crowds would respond to this astonishing miracle that he did by wondering if he could be the son of David, that is, the Messiah. Jesus had already inflicted a type of judgment on the Pharisees by withdrawing from them. It's important for us to remind ourselves that one of the worst things that God can ever do to a sinner is to leave that sinner to him or herself. And that's what Jesus has done. So when Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute, we are not surprised that the people, the crowds that were at least interested in Jesus, were in fact amazed. And they begin to speculate a bit, saying, can this be the son of David that is the Messiah? Now, the fact that they ask this question reveals they don't yet fully know who Jesus is. Right? They're not going, he is the Messiah. They're simply saying, could he be? And yet we can get a sense of their excitement, and we can reasonably hope that their excitement might move fairly quickly into genuine faith. Nevertheless, it turns out that a few of the Pharisees have actually followed Jesus. They haven't all left him alone. And they are on the horns of a rather difficult dilemma. Uh, I would tell you to put yourself in the seats of these Pharisees for a moment, but I really don't want you to do that. But do realize they're on the horns of a really difficult dilemma. There is a limited number of times that you could try to get people to ignore the fact that Jesus is doing things that no man has ever done since the foundation of the world. He's opened the eyes of a person born blind, for example. And right here in this passage, he casts out a demon, he heals him of his deafness, and he opens his eyes so that he can see, all by the word of his command. Now forget for a moment the power of Jesus in casting out the demon, which we're actually told he's doing by the Holy Spirit, right? the power of the Spirit of God. Just ask yourself an obvious question. How many times have you seen somebody open the ears of someone born deaf or open their eyes simply by the word of his own command? Zero? Yeah, me too. But that's also true of everyone in the crowd. So the Pharisees are going, we can no longer say, look, he's not really doing anything. And so they do something that's astonishingly evil. They say he's doing these things, particularly casting out the demons, by the power of Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies, a way of talking about Satan. It's an astonishingly wicked thing for them to do. Unlike the crowds, these Pharisees reveal that in their hearts, they stand in diametrical opposition to Jesus and to his ministry. See, the Pharisees do not merely fail to believe. They don't misunderstand. When the truth comes incarnate and is standing right in front of them, 
They get the truth. They hate the truth. And therefore, they reject the truth. And in doing so, they show they're not simply against Jesus. They're against the Father who has sent them. They are revealing the hardness of their hearts against God. They have set themselves against Almighty God and against God's plan to set the world to right. The division between those who are curious, right, they're interested in Jesus, and those who hate Jesus is becoming increasingly clear. The Pharisees were, in fact, used to being deferred to on religious matters. Uh, It would have been common for most people in Israel, they looked up to the Pharisees, they respected them, to actually bend the way they behaved, the way they talked, in a way that would be deferential to the Pharisees. They'd both praise the Pharisees, they would honor them, but, you know, when the Pharisees were around, they would behave a little differently so that they would receive the praise of the Pharisees rather than their condemnation. But if these Pharisees thought that they were going to bend Jesus to their will so that he would become their sort of Messiah, well, they were messing with the wrong King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As I say, Jesus is astonishing in his mercy. They can all see that. Right? Through his healing, yes, but also through the way he talked and gave the gospel to the poor and to the weak. Jesus is astonishing in his mercy, but he is not a wimp. Jesus Christ is not a tame lion. Now I've titled the next se- section, Christ the Conqueror. Um, Jesus is the good shepherd. We, we just heard in the last chapter that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not stuff out. That's entirely true. But what you want to hear from Jesus himself in his own words is that he has come with power as the king. He has come with authority as the king, the authority to bind up and cast out demons. Indeed, the authority to bind Satan and to pillage his kingdom. Verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus begins by showing the utter folly of what the Pharisees are saying. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, You know, in a battle, you don't attack your own people or your troops. Uh, Think about the horrible things that are going on right now in Israel and Palestine. Israel is bombing Gaza. They're not responding to Hamas by bombing Jerusalem. That's just totally irrational. Nobody would do that. But that actually teaches us something important. Sin is irrational. And in particular, hatred is irrational. Hatred totally obscures the way we see the world and we bend things and say things that are crazy they're so irrational only because we're trying to get our point across. That's where the Pharisees are. Please mark that in your own thinking. Um, Sometimes we've tended to treat atheists as though they're rational and people of faith as though we're taking a leap into the dark. But sin in general and hatred of God in particular are both irrational, and they lead to irrational thoughts and behaviors. Think about the other side of it. You know, we sometimes say that love is blind. And if we're talking about infatuation, 
Well, that's totally true. Um, infatuation's a wonderful thing, right? If you're in a, that sort of stage in life, enjoy it, but don't make any really big decisions while you're doing it, right? Because when you're infatuated, you ha you're having sort of this, this dreamlike relationship where you're discovering things, and you're actually, to a large degree, in love with the ideas that this could be, and you, and you sweep away all the problems, right? So enjoy being infatuated, but, you know, don't rush to getting married or something or anything really big like that. So that's good. In that sense, love is blind. However, real love, the biblical love, in terms of our commitments, is not like that at all. Uh, Dietrich von Hilderband, a very important um, Catholic philosopher of the 20th century, I think puts it really well. He says, no adage is more untrue than the adage that love is blind. Love is that which gives us sight. It allows us to see other people not only as they are, but as they were created to become, and by God's grace, they surely will be one day. Isn't that good? Well, I want to actually shift it just a little bit. I think that's true, that when we really love someone, we actually do see them as they are. And he'll go on to talk about even suffering for seeing the, the person you love and the remaining sin. But you also can see things about them that the, the mere passerby is going to totally miss. But there's another thing about love. Loving God causes us to see the world aright. Just as hating God leads to irrationality, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind causes you to see all of life increasingly as it really is. That is through God's eyes. I think I might have even prayed this morning in the, in the opening prayer about, uh, no, I guess I didn't, but about us thinking God's thoughts after him, right? Uh, having his thoughts be our thoughts and his ways be our ways, right? Th that, that's rational and clear. We should realize Jesus himself tells us this. Jesus will later say in the temple courts, if anyone resolves to do God's will... He will only know whether the teaching is from God. I'm sorry, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Let me give that to you again since I, since I twisted it a little bit. Jesus says, if anyone resolves to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Do You see, Jesus is telling us that Knowledge is not simply an intellectual pursuit where you do all the right things and you get it. It does involve hard work. Right? We don't want to take that out of the equation. But knowledge is also a gift. It's a gift that God gives to those who love him or are seeking him. If you want to know about Jesus, the truth about Jesus, you actually have to love God. Right? There's a moral component to gaining true knowledge. Now the problem with the Pharisees is not that they lacked evidence. The problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't love God and seek to do his will. Therefore, they were blinded by their own sin to recognizing the truth, even when the incarnate truth was standing right in front of them. Now, Christ's rebuttal takes a slight shift in verse 27. And it's a shift that raises an interesting question. Uh, thankfully, it's not a particularly important question for us to answer. Verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, 
By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now our Lord's point is actually very simple and straightforward. The Pharisees are being rather selective in applying their principle. Um, There are disciples of the Pharisees, people that they think are good and righteous people, who are engaged in trying to liberate people from the bondage of demons. And they praise their disciples, their, their fellow Pharisees, they praise them for doing this work by the power of the Spirit of God. And then they turn around to Jesus, who's doing far greater works, I mean, astonishing works, who's casting out demons all over the place, and they fail to recognize that he is the one uh, preeminently who is doing this work by the Spirit of God. Indeed, they say that he is in league with Beelzebul. Two points. First, the expression your sons does not necessarily refer to to lineal descents, right? Physical sons. I think most of you get this, but it's something that's useful to keep in mind in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but it shows up in the New as well. Uh, To call someone a son of something often just identifies them in that category. In fact, it's a normal way of talking about people of a nation. So if you say, you want to talk about the Ammonites, you say the sons of the Ammonites. Same thing with Israel. The sons of Israel are Israelites. And so this is not necessarily, and probably almost not, it's very unlikely that it would be, their physical sons. Right? So that's the first thing to realize. And second, uh, Jesus raises an interesting question for us about the work of casting out demons in the first century. That's sort of that twist. We honestly don't know very much about it, what the Jews were doing. Um, later on, the Bible will talk, for example, about the Apostle Paul casting out an evil spirit. Right? So Jesus isn't the only one who does it. But we're told nothing in Scripture about Jews who are not Christians engaging in this work. And so Jesus is making an allusion to something that we really don't have a lot of information about. Nevertheless, as Jeffrey Gibbs points out, the God of Israel has always preserved for himself a remnant of true believers. A few such righteous Jewish individuals are commended in the Gospels and the infancy narratives. And although we possess no specific knowledge of particular cases, it is perfectly reasonable to think that God could have enabled such Israelites as members of the faithful in the land and believers in the Holy One of Israel to cast out demons by his power. Well, the big point is obvious. The Pharisees knew that some righteous Jews were engaged in this sort of ministry. They praised them, and they condemned Jesus for doing the very same thing. Right? It just reveals what horrible hypocrites they actually were, and again, that their hatred of God and hatred of Jesus led them to all manner of irrationality. Our Lord continues in verses 29 and 30. Or how can some of you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Those are hard words. As I've said, the lion of the tribe of Judah is not a wimp. 
Um, I think R.T. France puts it particularly well. He writes, The work of Christ in casting out demons, far from being in collusion with Satan, are a direct assault on his possessions. Satan's kingdom is under attack. The strength of Satan as the god of this world is acknowledged, but now at last he has more than met his match. Jesus has tied him up so that he is now free to appropriate his possessions, or in the imagery of Isaiah 49, to release his captives. Jesus is Christ, the conqueror. Many Jews thought he was going to come and conquer the Romans. And in one sense, he eventually does. But Jesus came first to conquer Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people. Here's something we could miss. I want to encourage you, please don't miss this. Please don't miss the fact that Jesus is speaking to the crowds as well as to the Pharisees. Right? The rebuke here is directed at the Pharisees, a small group of Pharisees who in their hardness of heart are saying, you're in league with Beelzebul. But Jesus wants the whole crowd to overhear that. And Jesus also says something that I think is directed particularly at the crowds. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, it would have been easy for the crowds to say, we're on Jesus' side. Those Pharisees are way out of line saying that he's in league with Beelzebul. But I don't need to commit to Jesus yet. Right? I could be kind of in this neutral zone where I'm appreciating Jesus, I'm being nice about Jesus, I don't say anything really bad about Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, there's no neutral ground. If you're not for me, you're against me. You need to be my disciple, not merely someone who has their ears tickled when they hear me speak. Now, we should recognize this is a problem in our own day. It's been a problem all throughout church history. But in our own day, it's very common for people to think, well, you know, I, I think Jesus is fine. He was a good teacher. You know, I don't have any gripes with Jesus. I got gripes with Christians. But I don't have any gripes with Jesus. And, and they think Almighty God doesn't have any problem with that. Because they think they could take a position where they don't have to take a stand. And Jesus rules that out of bounds. Jesus says, please mark this in your own thinking if that's where you are this morning. If you haven't yet come to the place where you've committed to following Jesus, Jesus says, now that I've come and the kingdom of God has crashed into history, you need to repent. That is, you need to give up going your way and committing yourself to me, entrusting yourself to me, and committing by the power of the Holy Spirit you're going to seek to follow me. As he says in his very first recorded words as an adult and going into his ministry, the words of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now that Jesus has come, you are either for him or you are against him. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, this is really directed back, I think, primarily toward the Pharisees, but intending for everyone else to overhear. Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, 
either in this age or in the age to come. Now, in light of the rest of the passage, I find 31 to be remarkable. Uh, I think, actually, it's easy to skip over verse 31. It kind of only sets the, the stage, as it were, for Jesus talking about the unforgivable sin. But I want to encourage you not to skip over it. Uh, we hear Jesus declare in verse 31 the amazing grace that we so delight to sing about. Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, even those who speak a word against the Son of Man, that is against Jesus. Every sin? Can the Holy God say every sin? Adultery? Murder? Yes, Jesus says every sin. Um, consider David. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then she, he has her husband, Uriah, a faithful servant, killed in battle, murdered, to try to cover up his sin. And yet David is known as a man after God's own heart. We heard in our assurance of pardon today, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as washed as white as snow. Jesus did that for David. Jesus does that for you. And for anybody who trusts to him, every single sin, please don't miss that this passage about the unforgivable sin is introduced by God being a God of astonishing grace. Nevertheless, the line of the tribe of Judah is not a wimp. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are not only engaging in a horrible sin through their accusation, they are at risk of going so far in their sin that they will never be forgiven, neither in this age nor in the age to come. It is a sobering thing to contemplate the fact that there is an unforgivable sin that people actually commit. Uh, I know from time to time I've had to talk with people that have come to me and asked, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Right? Am I going to go through the rest of my life doomed? It is a sobering thing for Jesus to tell us that there's a sin that will not be pardoned either in this age or in the age to come. And so pastors like me, we frequently will say, well, if you're worried about it, you probably haven't committed it. And, and that's fair enough. But what exactly is the unpardonable sin? The contrast with verse 31, where we are told that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, right, everyone other than this one, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, even those who speak a word against the Son of Man should make clear that Jesus is talking about a rare sin. Right? This is not a common occurrence. Jesus is talking about something rare and unusual that really stands out. What the Pharisees are at risk of doing in attributing the work of Christ to Satan is extraordinarily evil. Now, many evangelical commentators in an effort to preserve the possibility that every person, so long as he or she has breath, 
can choose Jesus and be forgiven have suggested that the unforgivable sin is remaining persistently hardened in unbelief against Jesus until you die. Do you understand what their suggestion is? The unforgivable sin is remaining persistently hardened in unbelief, rebellion against Jesus until you die. And the attractive thing about that is it works theologically. If you remain persistent in your sin and don't repent until you die, in fact, not only will this sin not be forgiven, none of your sins will be forgiven. So it kind of works theologically, but it doesn't fit the passage. It's not what Jesus is talking about here. See, um, just think about the comparison. Uh, Jesus has said that if you speak against me, the Son of Man, that'll be forgiven to you. It's a different, distinct sin that you will not only be forgiven in the age to come after you die, you're going to be at a place where you will no longer be able to be forgiven in this present life. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, let's remember the context. These Pharisees are witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ's ministry as our Lord does miracles that nobody else has ever done since the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit is powerfully bearing witness to Jesus, and the witness is getting through. They know the truth. The witness of the Holy Spirit is getting through in their lives, and they hate the truth. And they reject God in the flesh. In fact, they attribute what Jesus is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing through Jesus, to Satan. Now, I don't want to be overly precise here, but it seems that the unforgivable sin involves a particularly clear revelation from the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is, not, not just external, right, but, but, but a revelation of the Holy Spirit that's getting through, that's met not with misunderstanding or even unbelief, but by a profound and open hatred of the things of God. Jesus is warning the Pharisees, be very careful. You are standing on the brink of no return. Now, such an understanding fits with the rest of Scripture. Uh, the Lord makes clear that his spirit will not always strive with men. Furthermore, nobody is entitled to the grace of God. That's a good thing to remind ourselves of. Nobody is entitled to the grace of God. No one's entitled to a first chance, let alone a second chance. And that's why God's word insists things like this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, there are two very practical things we need to say to apply to ourselves in relation to this doctrine of the unforgivable sin. And the first is, you can't tell whether or not anyone else has ever committed it. We can't read other people's hearts. You can't look at Bob or Frank or Sally and say, they're out of God's reach. Right? God has pushed them out of his reach, not that God lost his sovereignty. But you can't say that. You can never see anyone's hearts. So, so what you do, what I do, is what God has called us to do. To proclaim the gospel to everyone. No exceptions. Right? We, we leave this matter to God. We don't try to figure out the hidden things of God. We deal with the revealed things. Our call is not to read the human heart. It's to be faithful to the Great Commission. 
Second, there is only one way that you can know for certain that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So if some of you are wondering that in your own life, there is a way to know that you haven't committed this sin. But there's only one way, and that's to commit to following Jesus right now. See, if you trust in Jesus, you can know that you haven't committed it. Right? There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Jesus. How much? Not a little bit. Certainly not an unforgivable amount. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And so the answer is, set aside all the, the trying to reason through it and just follow Jesus right now. Let me say, by the way, even if you haven't committed this unforgivable sin, if you don't turn and follow Jesus Christ, you are, in fact, living under the wrath of Almighty God. Right? Jesus is the one way where you enter into life and into life with all its abundance. You do not need to commit the unusual sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit to remain under the wrath of God forever. Beloved, all you need to do is nothing. You cannot possibly know whether the Holy Spirit will give you another opportunity in the future. That, that's Satan's lie. Satan comes to you and says, not so much no, no, but wait, you, you can do this old when you're older, you know, sow your wild oats now. But you cannot possibly know that God is going to move in your life in the future in a way that's going to open you up to receiving the gospel rather than you becoming hardened. Today is the day of salvation for you. Why not commit to following Jesus this very day? Now, perhaps instead of devoting yourself to Jesus, you might be tempted to just clean up your act a little bit. Now, if that's what you're tempted with, it shows you what you're really concerned about is what other people think, your family, your parents, your neighbors. But you might be tempted. A lot of people have been. You clean up the outside enough, you're respectable enough, you learn to say the right things, and everybody will think you're a Christian, that you're following Jesus rather than really going your own way. Well, Jesus has a word for the Pharisees, which has profound applications for all of us. Look at verses 33 through 37 with me. Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, we actually have a bit of a problem in understanding this passage rightly. Because whenever we hear the word Pharisees, we think scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, isn't that how you think about them, right? A Pharisee, my first instinct is to think he's probably a hypocrite. I mean, that's not always true, by the way, so read the Gospels carefully. But that's not how they were perceived in the first century, right? We hear hissing when we hear the word Pharisee. First century Jews heard applause. They were the respected, devoted people. They were seeking to live out being set apart for God's glory. And they worked really hard to know the law. 
we have to get that, that their outside was all cleaned up. Right? Just as you might be tempted to do with your own life. The Pharisees actually looked really good on the outside, but Jesus is saying that these particular Pharisees are rotten to the core. See, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And what they are saying about Jesus and his ministry makes clear that for all their outward displays of piety, they are really a brood of vipers. I mean, that's not a nice thing to call anybody, whether in the first century or today. Now, we might think that people can cover over their speech as easily as they can change to having respectable behaviors. And the truth is, people can clean up their speech, learn the right lingo, and so on. But actually, I think this is a lot harder to do than we imagine. Ultimately, if you listen to people talk, and you hear how they talk about Jesus, how they talk about their neighbors, and so on, you start discovering a great deal about how they are. Um, here, here's a tip for you young people who, who are considering dating somebody. Um, they're going to say nice things about you. But that's not really a tell. But, but do you pay attention to how they talk about other people they meet, the people at work? If all the people they, they work with are complete idiots, that's a really bad sign. They're revealing something about their own heart and how they view other people. And, and if they're a Christian and they talk about other Christians that have different traditions and they disagree with us about certain things, do they talk about them as though they're brothers and sisters in Christ, or do they talk about them as though they're our enemies because they don't do things our way? That, see, that reveals something about them. It's actually a lot harder for people to totally change the way they talk than it is to change the way they look. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now that being said, we don't need to apply this to other people so much. Unless you do something big like marry somebody, right? Or go in a business partnership with someone, you got to really kind of get to know them really well. we got to apply this to ourselves. Or are we simply trying to clothe the outsides? See, the word that Jesus is saying here has two applications. One is very clear to the Pharisees. They are clearly outside the kingdom of God. Right? They are clearly evil. And the other is to the crowd. Who's not necessarily outside the kingdom of God. We should remember there were Jews who were saved before they came to full faith in Jesus. Right? They were believing God. They didn't quite understand everything. But most of them are actually still outside the grace of God. And Jesus is saying to both groups, you don't need a cosmetic change. You need a new heart, right? You need to be born again. Jesus had already told us that whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now our Lord is graciously making clear that being turned from going our own selfish way to embracing Christ as our faithful Lord and Savior and going his way is not a self-help project. It's something that God needs to do in you and on your behalf. Beloved, you do not need to carefully polish the outside of your life. What you and I need is to be born again from above. We need the Lord, the giver of life, to take out our hearts of stone, to give us tender hearts that will love him. Then and only then, Will our words and our deeds truly become pleasing in God's sight?
See, you can fool your neighbor. Uh, you can fool me as your pastor. But you can't fool Jesus. Beloved, the line of the tribe of Judah is not a wimp. He will not look at our sins, shrug his shoulders, and say, no big deal. Jesus is not like that. But thankfully, what Jesus has come to do is so much greater than that. In Christ, the living God demonstrates both the power and the grace to give us new life. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Praise be to God. Amen.